Hello and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan from Adobe, and this week I have the pleasure of sitting down with Diana Smith, the Director of Brand and Product Marketing at Twilio.org. We talk about moving from the swim lane as a product marketer in tech to the nonprofit segment at a large corporation where everything from the goals to personas are different. I really enjoyed this interview because we also get into the brass tacks of solutions marketing, which I think can be applicable to almost any role. I also wanted to share that I love all of the amazing comments pouring in from LinkedIn every week from product marketers, students, and even other roles like sales ops and trainings. Thank you so much for reaching out. Even my 94-year-old grandmother had a listen and she says that she was surprised that she was so interested in the episode that she actually listened to the whole thing. So thanks for that, Mima. Women in Product Marketing is proudly supported by Clue. That's Clue with a K, the competitive enablement platform for all product marketers. And this podcast was proudly produced by ShareBird, the peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It is the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with your product marketing. Please subscribe, share with someone you think will love it, and give us a rating or a review while you're at it. Now a word from our partners at Clue. Meet Jen. She's selling her division's product to a savvy new prospect. And unfortunately for Jen, she's about to get blindsided. So that sounds great, uh, but your competitor just launched something very similar. Uh, How do you compare? Jen needs to move fast. With a few taps, she leverages up-to-date intel her product marketing team has curated with Clue. Later in the show, we'll hear more on how Clue helps reps like Jen win deals every day. Learn more at clue.com slash Mary. All right, let's do this. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Diana Smith, the Director of Product Marketing and Brand for Twilio's Social Impact Division. She previously hails from Segment, where she started the marketing organization and led PMM. She also has vast experience working in PR at Triple Point and has experience working at Disney as well. Diana is also one of the top 100 product marketing influencers, according to the Product Marketing Alliance. And her product marketing experts podcast with Marcus Andrews was ranked as number two. So she is so amazing for this whole product marketing community. And so glad we're here to talk with you today. Thanks so much, Diana, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mary. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. So, so pumped. And we have a lot of mutual connections in the product marketing world. So really fun to kind of go through that. I know that you're good buddies with Krithika, who was actually our first guest on women in product marketing. So she just sings your praises and really great to see this come full circle and finally get to meet you. I think Krithika, she's been such a good peer mentor to me in terms of learning about how to market to the developer audience specifically with her experience at Stripe. So always love chatting with her. You must be on the CRM of her friends that we were talking about in her episode that you need a Rolodex of your friends that you kind of keep connecting with CRM being the new Rolodex and you must learn a lot from each other. That's so awesome. And so one way that I love to start off this show every week, because I know that product marketers are so curious and always learning on the job and learning in our professional lives and our personal lives. So I wanted to ask you, what is one thing that you have learned lately? This is a great question. And I love the framing because I think being curious is such an important piece of being a good product marketer. For me, something that I've learned or just more reminded myself recently is that with so much going on day to day in our digital lives and slacks and emails and projects, everything coming at you, 
lots of Zoom calls, it's really important to create space and time to really do the deep thinking of how do we get to the next level? What are we missing? What are we doing well? And really create that space for reflection and thinking, which is even harder, I think, when we're all working from home right now. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot, especially as 2021 planning comes up. So just creating that space and really protecting it. It's easy to let it go when folks want to talk to you. <laughs> I am the queen of that. Diligent. I constantly block off the time on my calendar and then <laughs> things just creep in 30 minutes at a time. So do you have any tips specifically drilling into that about how do you, mm-hmm. how do you say no? And how do you make sure people on your team maybe know not to book that time or what are some tactical ways to help us all protect that important strategy thinking time? I'll share some of my thoughts and I will say that I'm not always the best at them, so this, but this is what I try to do. I will say I am a bit aggressive in the way that I block my calendar because <laughs> if I just say do not schedule or work time or something, people are just going to schedule over that. So I say like every day I block off time to actually have lunch, what a thought, and go on a walk. And in that invite, I say, please make sure I have space for this if you move it, you know. And then I told my whole team that this is something I'm trying to actually do and manage just to keep my mind at ease throughout this time. Please don't schedule over this time. And then also the other thing I've been doing is every week or two weeks, creating time in my blocks on my calendar that actually say what I'm planning to do instead of just saying work time or whatever, because then it helps me figure out, okay, I need time to do this. And then it makes people feel a little bit worse scheduling over your strategic planning or whatever it is that your actual project is, because they probably know that thing needs to get done. So those are some of my tips. And also just saying, you know what, is it okay if this happens next week? Just asking. And and there'll always be things that are urgent that you have to deal with, but those are some of my tips. Thank you so much. I love that. Yeah. I've done the lunch thing starting off in the new year. And actually it's such a game changer because you you get 30 minutes, eat a sandwich, not on a meeting. Who would have thought we all need a little break from eight hours of video calls a day. Totally agree. And I think that part about actually scheduling the time with something specific is so important because it motivates you too. And you get that time to really think through the project that you have dedicated that time to, and it helps people, like you said, feel a little bit worse if they're thinking about actually walking over it. So I'm going to try that. That's a great new year's resolution to have too. (laughs) Let me know how it goes. I will. (laughs) If that works. (laughs) And so I know that you have such a cool role at Twilio. You work as a product marketer, the director of product marketing, in fact, for their social impact division at Twilio.org. Tell us about that because that really sounds like a dream job. I will say it's pretty fun. I didn't realize before having this job that this was a job that existed. (laughs) So when I was starting to explore, I was really happy to find that this was a thing one could do. To be a little bit more specific, at Twilio, we have a whole division all about social impact called Twilio.org. And in our division, we cover things from actually giving grants and donations to nonprofits, to engaging all of our employees to do good and to volunteer and donate their own time and money. And also, because Twilio's products are so relevant for nonprofits, actually helping nonprofits use the product at a heavily discounted rates and get them up and running with Twilio technology so they can help more people and communicate with more people. So when you think about how would nonprofits use Twilio? And for those who don't know about Twilio, we call ourselves a customer engagement platform, which basically means you can use Twilio to communicate with a lot of different people at one time or a scale of one-on-one communications, whether it's 
over SMS, voice, video, what have you. And in the nonprofit context, that's anything from dispatching volunteers from the American Red Cross over SMS to go to a disaster zone, to answering mental health crisis calls over a hotline, to doing telemedicine calls with, with your doctor and many healthcare providers or nonprofits. So those are all different ways that nonprofits can be using Twilio. And my role uh, as director of marketing for Twilio.org is both how do we generate new interest and more usage in the nonprofit sector And also, how do we tell the stories of all of our amazing customers to build affinity and awareness for Twilio as a company that invests in doing good? That's fantastic. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into this particular nonprofit side, because I know there's a lot of folks out there that have been in tech and been in the product marketing role. And the nonprofit side seems harder to make the jump into once you've been in one swim lane for a while. So was it just a matter of looking at different job listings, having communications, or was that something that was a passion or a value for you that you really actively sought out? Can you talk a little bit about that linear or non-linear path that you went through? (laughs) Of course. When I was looking at what my next job was going to be, I was kind of debating between sticking with my developer tech experience that I had gained at Segment and going deeper there, maybe leading a a marketing organization at a smaller company, but I was also really interested in doing something that just felt, you know, more fulfilling, more meaningful, that I wasn't just helping lots of companies make more money, which often is really what you're doing at the end of the day as a product marketer, is if they're using your products, they're making more money. And I was starting to explore what what options were out there for me, because I didn't even really know what I would be qualified for, this exact question that maybe other folks have. And I found that there were kind of two types of roles that were relevant for me as a B2B product marketer. One was going into what's called the social enterprise space, where it's an actual company that makes money and has a revenue stream. But the goal of that is a social impact goal. So whether it's focused on climate or women's health or getting organizations who employ a lot of low-income people to help them with financial goals. There's all these types of like social enterprises that do sell to businesses. That was one angle. Uh, The other angle that I saw at Twilio, and there's actually a lot of cloud companies that have actually this kind of social impact division, which is what I found when I was looking into Twilio. There's many other cloud tech companies like Okta, Google, who have nonprofit divisions. That was a bit more of a clear fit for me where I could translate my product marketing experience from segment to this new technology, actually selling the technology to nonprofits. So there was a little bit more relevant experience for me to pitch myself. But at the same time, I think there's all different types of ways to get involved. And I would just start with volunteering with an organization that you really care about. That's another way to to start to help them with their marketing. And for those of us who aren't in consumer, which a lot of these nonprofits are, that could be one way to start to build your expertise to be able to work actually in the nonprofit sector itself for a nonprofit. That's such good advice. And I recently have also volunteered for a nonprofit called Nextdoor Solutions just to plug them if you want to donate. <laughs> what do they do? There. They are a, a service that helps women and their children and actually men as well, if it comes up, but it's more likely to be um, women and children that need to have shelter and counseling because of domestic violence. And Mm -hmm. you might know a little bit about this with the 
pandemic, a shadow pandemic has really been around domestic mm-hmm. violence for um, some of these less resourced groups. So what I found really interesting with volunteering for a nonprofit is that the things that we take for granted with technology are really game changing for them. So mm-hmm. being able to show them how to use hashtags and comments appropriately for Instagram and just social best practices and helping them with copy on their webpage and their newsletters, I think really added a lot of value. And so it was really cool to kind of step into that role. And I don't know if my path will take me that way, but I think it was really neat to be able to have that experience at this point in my career, actually volunteering for someone that could be using it so well. So really happy that you're recommending that too. I find that really to be valuable. And of course, if if you don't have time, donating money is great as well. They could really use it. But I also think it's really great. You were able to find this role that seems to be a great intersection or a marrying of the experience that you are already really comfortable with and have, but an area that you wanted to build out in and be really passionate in. So that's, that's so cool and great advice for everybody out there that's looking to maybe make a a slight pivot, but not a total change in their whole career trajectory. Yeah. I think one lesson that I learned from being able to, to get this role is just the fact that you don't often know what kind of roles you're going to have in your career. Like if when I was back in college, would I know that this is what I was doing or even before that I would be a product marketer for a API analytics company? I wouldn't know what that was or like that that was even an option to have a career in that. But I knew that I liked communications and marketing and understanding business and, you know, one step at a time in my career, this is where I am now. So I think it's okay if you don't know exactly what it looks like, but just taking that time to explore your next step and what you want to focus on can lead you to some interesting things you might not have thought of. That was my big learning. Totally agree. Yeah. Our last guest, Trisha Gelman, who is the CMO of Drift, she described that as a bit of a jungle gym, building different parts of your toolkit throughout your career, not necessarily setting out that five or 10 year path because you don't know what jobs or technology are going to be out there. So that's that's such a good reminder and not to stress about it because build up that experience, go after what you're interested in and don't necessarily worry if it's not on paper and working out perfectly. I would love to hear a little bit more on how you have found the nonprofit marketing to be different than mm-hmm. for-profit marketing so far. And I'm also interested because your role is product marketing and brand. So if you could talk a little bit about how that's different and what are some of the elements that you really see playing out in this space? Sure. And and this is where I'll admit that I'm still learning. I'm about a year in and I've got a lot more to learn in terms of all the great nuances of the nonprofit market. I think it starts with one of the cool things about being on the Toyota.org team is that our number one goal is about impact and how we measure impact is actually the number of people helped by using our product. So that's one person who's been reminded to vote. That's one over text. One person who's been connected with a mental health care provider. That's one. And we actually focus on that, which is really meaningful and helps ground us in, in what we're trying to do versus, you know, revenue and all these other kind of metrics that you often have in the marketing world. And that also helps you with framing the way we talk to nonprofits because that's what their goals are. Their goals are around helping people and creating impact. And because nonprofits care about impact, you have to adjust the way you're talking to them. And most for-profit corporations, when you're selling your value and you're creating your value points or 
you know, your key points, you're always talking about how they can make more money and how they can save money and how they can increase their revenue. And that's just not the language that nonprofits are talking about. They're talking about how do I reach more people? How do I help more people with fewer resources? And it's really a language and understanding what their goals are and how to adjust the messaging and positioning there. The other thing that's different with nonprofits is every nonprofit is usually focused in a particular issue area. And to do a good job of talking to them or telling their story, you have to learn a little bit about that issue area and what language is appropriate. So for example, we work with organizations that are helping with substance use and substance abuse using that language is actually demeaning to people in that place, which I had to learn. So I had to learn all these things, nearly every story that you're telling about these different nonprofits or that you're trying to attract new nonprofits in certain, what we call issue areas, there's a lot of learning to figure out what's the right way to frame this and and be really open-minded that we may not know just in our everyday lives what's most appropriate to show that the nonprofit and the people they're serving really have a lot of power and are empowered in whatever it is that they're doing to build a better life. So I think those things are the most different. In terms of what's the same, at the end of the day, it is still a marketing exercise where you have to learn about your audience. You have to learn what their challenges are. You have to figure out how to tell the story that your products are going to help them solve their problems in a unique and differentiated way. And that skill set of being able to do that is still applicable either in nonprofit marketing or in any kind of industry marketing. Yeah, I was going to say, as you were talking through it, it sounds like how you might develop a vocabulary to talk to a particular persona or customer segment, Mm -hmm. really going deep and learning those little nuances, like substance abuse is not the right terminology to use. And how do you fulfill what they're really looking for? And I also like how you mentioned the goal setting as being very different than we're looking at on the for-profit side as impact and really making people's lives better and really thinking about that. And that's probably why a lot of people get into those roles. So making sure that the impact and their ultimate KPIs, so to speak, are really around the things that matter to them. That Mm -hmm. is really wonderful. So thanks, thanks for explaining that in a little more detail. I appreciate that. Now we'll pause for a quick word from our partners at Clue. Not a day goes by in sales that someone doesn't ask how your product compares. Earlier, a friend Jen dug herself out of a tight spot with Clue, the product marketer's platform for handling all things competitive. Clue helps product marketing teams collect intel from coworkers, Slack, emails, and the web, putting it all into one place that's always up to date and giving Jen the superpowers she needs when she needs them. Listen in at the end of this episode to hear how Clue empowers every team across the org with insights, something we call competitive enablement. For any of you wondering how to put together a competitive enablement program or build battle cards that your sales teams will love, head on over to clue.com slash Mary. So now I want to talk a little bit about one of your superpowers, which is solutions marketing. And I know that this was something you did really, really well day in and day out at Segment. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach solutions marketing and thinking about use cases that nest up underneath that? Sure. So one of of the things I love about working on technology platforms like both Segment and Twilio is that there's so many different ways that they can be used. And I always find it Whenever I found out about a new use case, I always get really excited. For example, I learned that our IoT product at Twilio can be used to make sure that the refrigeration is correct on the vaccine so they actually work 
when they're being delivered on trucks by the time they get to patients. And for me, that was really interesting and exciting to learn about. So when I think about doing solutions marketing, what I find is most helpful is actually to document all those, what I call micro level or user level use cases, document as many of those as you can, and then start to group them with what is most, what is aligned in terms of the actual business goal that people are trying to create and what is relevant to each other. And as you start to group together the use cases that you're seeing most frequently on your platform, you'll be able to start to bucket what are the main things people are trying to do with this product or what's the business goal and business outcome. And that's usually where the solution is going to land. And that solution should be oriented towards the buyer or the executive who's trying to figure out what can this do for my business. And then that's leveling up or inclusive of multiple other sub-use cases that the users might care about actually doing. And once you have that grouping together, what I found to be the most successful is figuring out what type of content do you need to speak to those different personas? At the high level, maybe on your website or in your sales decks, you need to be talking at the solution level to the buyer. But in other content, developer blog posts or webinars, you could be talking about use cases that are a bit lower on the funnel or a little bit deeper and more specific to help talk to those folks who are trying to do those specific things. That's a really great visualization. And I'm, I'm thinking of a Miro board or something where you have all these different elements or you know <laughs> note cards or whiteboard when we can go back into the office where you're kind of marking all of these down and really thinking about how those use cases can be really relevant and make the story really crisp and make sense for a particular user segment. But then when you're thinking about, hey, let's talk to the C-level, let's bring it up to these solutions so they really understand how it can impact their business. So mm-hmm. I really like that framing. And Did one you- example, maybe it would help to share is in the nonprofit world, You know, one of the, I guess you could call it solutions, it's still a bit of a use case that we focus on with Twilio is how do you inspire people to take action? That's the goal that nonprofits have, inspiring action. But within there, there are many different things people can do, whether it's driving peer-to-peer community support or fundraising, or you might be doing community organizing. There's a lot of different things and specific ways you could use the products, peer-to-peer messaging or fundraising emails or these different use cases that would nest within the overall concept of inspiring people to action. So that's just one example of how you might think about grouping use cases. And in your experience working at these companies that are a bit more Swiss army knives, as you described when we were talking earlier, do you find that the use cases come organically from customers or prospects, or is it the product managers that are building the products or on the product marketing side or some kind of combination of all three or more? Where do you find those use cases come from? I think the best companies take them from their customers. So they're listening to their customers. They're really paying attention to how their customers are using and they're documenting all of that. And then they're synthesizing it and figuring out what are we seeing as a common pattern? What are we seeing most frequently? And one of the things that I think is amazing about Twilio's product strategy is the way that Twilio is doing that is now they're building products to make it easier what they're seeing everyone do with the smaller use cases. So for example, Twilio is seeing a lot of customers do customer support use cases and building out phone trees when you call in to get some information from some company. And because they saw so many people using this customer support use case, they built a product that makes it way easier for you to start with that off the bat called Twilio Flex, which is a contact center product. 
So I think that the best companies that are customer forward are really looking at the customers and what they're doing and using. Then internally, you're starting to group together and seeing what are the patterns that you could pull up for other customers. That's really great. And I feel like that just connects so many of the dots for product marketing. You're talking and listening to your customers. You're trying to bring the voice of the customer to product and marketing and sales team. So it really helps to kind of show that full circle, starting with the use cases and how they're using it and thinking of the creative ways that you can then package it. So it makes sense to others. I really love that. Thank you for that. I also wanted to talk a little bit about some of the predictions that you have for product marketing in 2021. So this was part of your PMA nomination, and I really loved your predictions. Can you share a bit about these? I think 2021, as 2020 was, is going to be a wild year for all of us. We don't really know what's coming. Maybe we see some light at the end of the tunnel. But because of that, product marketers are going to have to take responsibility for constantly updating the messaging to be appropriate for what's going on in the world and the economy. In the beginning, when COVID started, it wasn't all about growth and it was more about maintaining your existing customers, you know, for certain industries. And the product marketers are going to have to become the ones who are paying attention to how customers and the economic outlook are impacting their business and adjusting the messaging frequently based on what's happening. So for example, if you're in travel, you're probably trying to talk about how it's safe to travel or when it will be safe to travel. If you're in um, B2B or digital type software, you're probably talking about how companies should continue the pace of innovation that they needed to start in 2020 to deal with the new digital world. So making your messaging relevant to the moment is what PMMs are gonna have to do in 2021. And they're probably gonna have to change it quite a few times. I totally agree. I think that's spot on. We saw that a lot in the advertising world where COVID was the main story for so long. It needed to be in every marketer's message, but then there was COVID fatigue and people didn't want to hear about it at all. So just thinking about how you evolve, even that slight message change, but really it has such a big impact and Again, the advice would probably be talk to your customers, hear what's resonating with them, try to understand where they're coming from. And obviously don't be afraid to change your creative, change your messaging, be more agile than we ever have in the past. So that's great. That is a prediction I will second. I think that's (laughs) spot on. Yeah. I also think when we think about product marketers in 2021, I just think the role is going to continue to grow in importance. And as something that a lot of folks want to do. I get really excited about all the roles that are at the nexus of understanding the technology in the market and really being deep about getting into the technical weeds, but also being able to translate that into customer and business value and tell a story. I think product marketing is one of the roles in that space. I also think solutions engineering, sales engineering, customer success is interesting, as well as community and developer evangelism. I think those are all really neat roles I think are going to continue to grow that are that collaboration of business value plus technology. I agree. Those are great. Thanks so much for sharing those, Diana. And I can't believe it, but we're already at our rapid fire question section. So a few more for you that I'm sure everyone would love to hear. So who have been some of your strongest product marketing mentors? Some mentors for me over the years have been Jason Godoff over at Pendo, I hired him as a consultant once and he taught me a bunch about consistency and prioritization. Matt Hodges, who used to be at Intercom, Holly Wegman, who was my leader at Segment, and Emily Ritter, 
Krithika, who you mentioned before, have all been great mentors to me in product marketing. That's so great. I love that the first person you mentioned, Jason, was actually a consultant and then ended up being a mentor for you. That's great. I mean, there's connections everywhere and just kind of keeping up to speed with people. And that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. I hired him because I didn't know what I was doing back when I first started in product marketing. I'm like, you seem to know what you're doing. And that, that worked out pretty well. That's perfect. So maybe this, this really correlates really well with the next question, which is how do you find these mentors? I think my example with Matt is a good example. So when I was first starting out in product marketing, especially, and I was figuring out the role from scratch, I just looked at companies I thought were really good at something, whether it was product naming or positioning or jobs to be done framework or whatever. And at that time I felt like intercom was a really good, was really strong at all those things that I want to get better at. So I just reached out to Matt and I said, Hey, I think you're good at this. Will you talk to me about how you do it? And that's how I've created a lot of my mentor relationships over the years, even sitting on panels with folks or just seeing something that I think they do really well and asking to, them to talk to me about it. And people generally feel good about that and are willing to, to chat with you, <laughs> especially if you're specific. I think being really general, like, will you be my mentor? That's hard for people to know what to do with. They're like, how much am I signing up for? Like, that seems like a lot of work. But if you can say, I want to ask your opinion on this one thing, I think you do well people are down to chat with you. I'm so impressed that you did this because I actually remember seeing a presentation from Matt Hodges and I think he wrote a book on jobs to be done. And I was just totally in awe of that whole concept. And I never thought, Hey, let's have a coffee and talk about it. But you went that extra step and we're able to make a connection. So I really envy your lack of fear to reach out <laughs> and the connections that it's made. That's amazing. Yeah. I will say being at Segment at the early days was also helpful because we had such a big partner network. I was connecting with all these other marketers that were partners of us through partner marketing. That's how I met Emily, who was at Mode, and then at Gusto and Krithika as well, and even Intercom. I had a kind of a reason to reach out to them. Oh, we're partners. So that was a little bit easier. But overall, I find, especially in the tech community, people are really open to chatting. I agree. That's awesome. And what is one thing that has been really important to you in terms of growing your career? Reflecting on what I've done and how I can constantly improve, perhaps too, too much, but that I think has been how I continue to grow at a rapid pace. And it goes back to my dad who always likes to create these funny acronyms that he makes up himself. But the top one that he had when we were growing up was called APPER, Anticipate, Plan, Execute, Review. That was the household I grew up with. And that always stuck with me to make sure I'm spending the time to review how things went and see how they can get better. I am so impressed. I'm imagining you as an eight-year-old with this on the refrigerator. There's sticky notes. <laughs> yeah, we were a silly household growing up, but my sister and I definitely learned this uh, constant improvement as a value. That's amazing. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. I would also want to understand a little bit, you know, we talked about mentoring and you talked through this a bit, but how do you network? And especially right now in the virtual world. I don't know that my networking recommendations are all that different than my finding a mentor recommendations. It's really just finding things that you admire and telling people that you thought it was cool, that you were interested, whether that's just a Twitter post or a LinkedIn post or a quick message when you're not quite finding a mentor and then just remembering what people care about and trying to send them something that's relevant. Oh, I remember you were thinking about how you do X, Y, Z. I saw this article. Here it is. And trying to be helpful based on what you've heard from, from that person. 
I agree. That goes such a long way. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. One last question. Why product marketing? Product marketing to me is the most fun part of marketing because it's very strategic. You have to understand so much about the market and your competitors and your customers and the technology to be able to create stories and messaging and campaigns. And for me, I just find that it's such a great opportunity for learning and strategic thinking. It's a fun role. And you get to be in front of customers all the time. Customers are the best. And if you think that you should be a product marketer. (laughs) (laughs) It's never a dull moment. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. Would you mind sharing how people can get in touch with you if they'd like to follow up after this episode? Best way to get in touch with me is either to reach out on LinkedIn or I'm a little bit more active on Twitter. You can find me at Diana H. Smith. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Diana. It was such a pleasure to get to chat with you. Thank you so much for all of your insights. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. Great chatting with you. Salespeople want short, digestible insights. They don't want 17-page decks that are scattered across the web and who knows where. Clue makes it easy to create and deliver battle cards. In a pinch, sales teams can find them easily with all the insights they need on how to handle their competitors while working a deal. And with Clue, it's not just sales teams who want battle cards. The product team, customer success, and marketing, they all compete too. Now, everyone can compete to win. That wraps the ninth episode of Women in Product Marketing. For all of you wondering how to put together a competitive enablement program or build battle cards that your sales team will love, head on over to clue.com slash Mary, that's K-L-U-E dot com slash Mary, and tell them that I sent you. They will set you up with some free resources like the Guide to Competitive Intelligence. I can't believe it, but next episode will be the 10th and final episode of the first season of Women in Product Marketing. Please join me when I meet with Lisa Kant, the VP of Product Marketing at Zendesk. Be sure to subscribe and share Women in Product Marketing with someone you think will love it. Thank you so much for all of your support and catch you next week.